morning, Grace Covenant Church. It is a joy to be with you this morning to bring to you the Word of God. If you will open up in your Bibles to Psalm 47. Psalm 47 is where we will be spending the majority of our time at this morning. If you did not bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, you can take that and use that this morning. And if you don't own one, take it home. It's our gift to you this day. We want you to have the word of God with you at all times. So as you're opening up those Bibles and as you're looking for Psalm 47, I want to ask you a really simple question. One I'm sure you all know the answer to. Why do we sing in corporate worship? Why do we sing every Sunday? Do you know? Because it's amazing. I love that. Is it for an emotional high? That we can somehow feel closer to God through rhythmic meter and repetition, maybe even using shallow words? Or is it to be dry and dusty, void of any sort of emotional response? Maybe it's to be intellectually and theologically superior than others. Those don't sound right, do they? Maybe it's for people who are running late and have to find a place uh, for them to, to sit down before the sermon starts. And that's why we need to sing a few songs in the morning. There may have been an amen. I'm not sure. <laughs> this morning, God's word will give us answers as we look to Psalm 47. As Psalm 47 unpacks for us this beautiful reality. So here now the very word of God for you this morning. Psalm 47, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Hear the word of God this morning. Now as we jump into Psalm 47 and as we're unpacking it and trying to understand it, I don't want you to forget over the past few months as we've been working through our psalm study. Typically, the first Sunday of every month, although we've strayed from that over the past couple. But you'll remember Psalm 45, 46, 47, and Lord willing, next month, 48. They're all actually going to be a group of psalms. All of these psalms are trying to help us understand that Christ is our king. If you go back to Psalm 45, we talked about this beautiful reality of this eternal throne that will last forever and the king is coming to fill that throne and the king we understand 
is Christ. And if you're like, wait, I don't see that. Go back and listen to that sermon. I make that argument, right? And the queen that the king is coming to take is the church. And their children are going out through all the world to spread the gospel. That was Psalm 45. And then Psalm 46, right on the heels of it, is telling us of this cataclysmic end, right? It's not your coffee cup verse of be still and know that I am God. It is the cataclysmic ending to all reality. As mountains are thrown into the sea, as the enemies are destroyed, and as the people of God who can get worked up into this anxious fretting uh, about the end, see God rebuking them, say, be still, know that I am your God. And then we come to Psalm 47. There is actually, we're working through these, and Psalm 47 comes right on the heels of this cataclysmic ending in Psalm 46. So we're going to be referring back to that again and again. So this morning, as you're preparing your hearts to work through this psalm, I think we can kind of categorize Psalm 47 as a kingly, ascension, end-time praise psalm. Really neat and easy categories, right? That, that was... Not just one, but a bunch. So that's how we're going to start this morning as we work through the Word of God. Now, I asked you the question, why do we sing? And this morning, instead of kind of walking through verse by verse, we're still going to hit all the verses before anyone freaks out, okay? Uh, instead of just walking through in that order, we're going to try to answer three other questions that are going to shed light on why we sing. So if you're a note taker, this is how you can divide up your notes. The first question is, who is God? That's the first question that we are going to try, try to answer from this psalm this morning. Who is God? The second question we're going to try to understand and answer is, what has he done? So number one is, who is God? Number two is, what has he done? And then number three our last question is what he calls us to do in response. Who is God? What has he done? And how are we to respond? So with all of that, let's start off with our first question. Who is God? When we look at this psalm, we see Psalm uh, 47 starting with these imperatives to sing. We're going to get there. But in verse 2 is our first introduction to um, this name that God's going to be called by. We, we see shout to God, but then in verse 2, we see for the Lord. Now, if you've heard me preach in the Psalms, you understand that we're going to have to pause here. Uh, when you see the word Lord in all caps, uh, hopefully you guys are like, we know already, Andrew. We've heard you tell us a hundred times. But if it's in all caps, it's talking about the covenantal name of God. It's talking about Yahweh. That is who God is. But when we think of this word, uh, Yahweh, this covenantal name for God, we need to understand what does it mean for God to be covenantal. So I pray that this never loses is, its impact. I pray that we never forget about this, about this beauty of the covenantal God in which we serve. So number one, as we unpack who is God, he is covenantal. And as we understand what covenantal means, let's just start with that he is a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe who has condescended to make a, co a covenant 
with a sinful people who could never live up to their side of the bargain. When we think of covenant, we think of a promise. He is coming down to make a promise to a people. And he has done so as this covenantal God knowing that we are sinners and we are never going to live up to our end of the bargain. That he, being this all-powerful God, is going to condescend down low to a sinful people in order to help them. See, God does not need us. It wasn't like from the beginning of time he, he said, oh no, I need to have this creature that's going to praise me in order for me to have meaning. No, God does not need us at all. But out of his love, he decided not only to create us, but to redeem us. And he does that by entering into a covenant with his people. So when we think of covenantal, we need to think of our God as a relational God. He interacts with his people through his spirit, by his word, and by his son. Covenantal. Who is our God? He is a covenantal God. Now, we go to the very next three words that says, For the Lord, this covenantal God, the Most High. Not only do we understand God as being covenantal, but we need to understand him as being the most high. Nothing is above our God. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. So when we are thinking of this most high God, it's actually interesting that this kind of terminology comes right on the heels of Psalm 46. Remember, Psalm 46 was the total destruction it was this eschatological or this end time psalm pointing towards the end of all creation as God speaks and the world literally melts. And when we read Most High, there's actually some mocking happening here. There's actually mocking of other people's gods in this because other people during that time that this was written would call their gods the Most High. And so the psalmist is actually taking aim at their gods, saying, remember Psalm 46? You think your God is the Most High? No, we worship the Most High. How did those gods handle the mountains being thrown into the oceans? How about all the nations tottering? Did they last through the earth melting? Not a chance. Our God is not only covenantal, but he is Most High, all-powerful, above all earthly things. And then we move to the bottom of verse 2 in your Bible, probably, because it says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Finally, we come to the, character, uh, the characteristic of him being a king. So we see that our God, who is he? He's a covenantal, most high king. In fact, most of this psalm is going to spend time unpacking that God is king and what his dominion is and that we should sing. So if you take anything away from this psalm, it's that God is king and we should sing. Okay, That's, that's a quick, easy way to have a summary of our entire psalm this morning. But this most high God, this most high king who has dominion over all things. When we think of kings, we think of his power. We think of his promises. We think of his fulfillments. To know our God as king is to understand him as our sovereign. A part of being a king is having a kingdom. 
And if we are of his kingdom, then we obey our king. So our king not only controls his kingdom, but he tells us how to live in it. His kingship, this psalm says, is over all the earth. His reign over the nations. His throne in the heavens. Behold our God, the covenantal most high king over all the earth. Who is our God? That is who our God is. That is what Psalm 47 describes our God as. And now we come to our second question. Well, okay, if we understand God as the covenantal, most high, kingly God over all the earth, then we have to ask the question, well, what has he done? What has this covenantal God done throughout redemptive history? Now, if we continue just walking down this psalm in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see two practical examples uh, answering this question. So we're going to break this up into a bunch of different categories, so hang in there. So if you're a note taker, who is God? We answered that. Now we're going to what has he done, okay? The first thing that we're going to look about or look at what he's done is what has he done in redemptive history, or you might say his mighty deeds, We see in verse 3, it reads, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So we see this mighty king has subdued all peoples and all nations. This begins to give us that taste, that prophetic taste of Psalm 47. This psalm that's pointing to the end. Pointing to the completion of all that God has done. Now, If we're trying to take this psalm in its uh, context saying, well, this was written by the sons of Korah who were part of the people of Israel, we need to understand what they were doing. Okay, great. The reality is, is that Israel had many victories, many battles that they had won, right? We, uh, We read of David and the victories that he had and the singing and the dancing that was done when he came in and even how that made Saul mad about the thousands and the hundreds Uh, that were slayed by King David more than King Saul. We see that all throughout redemptive history, God has been given victory for his people. We can look at Joshua. When Joshua goes in and conquers the promised land, we can see that promise, that being subdued of the peoples or the nations. But we don't have a specific instance in Psalm 47 that is talking about their conquering. So if we don't have a specific instance that we see, we can undertake or we can understand this as not only yes, meaning that they've had victories in the past, but there is a victory in the future. And before you think I'm just talking crazy up here, you've got to see it on the edge of Psalm 46. Psalm 46 that was clearly talking about the end. So then we see in Psalm 47, his great deeds that he's done, well, in the end, he has subdued all things. In fact, the psalmist is not, uh, this isn't the first time he's talked like this. If you go back to Psalm 2, if you go to Psalm 110, we see the fact that there will be this completion uh, as the son is begotten and his, his inheritance is all the nations and as God has made them his footstool. So number one, as we look at these mighty deeds that God has done, it is subduing the peoples and how he will subdue the peoples. Secondly, he has chosen our heritage. Now, this is really interesting. When you read, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. 
When we read this, this choosing of the heritage of Jacob, it's another way of saying that God has chosen Israel. And not only has he chosen Israel, but he has chosen the inheritance that he will give them, which is the promised land, which is something that he has done. He has given those people the promised land. However, we understand that God does much more choosing than this. He has chosen a people. Remember, he is this covenantal God. And so he is condescending and he is choosing a people for himself from before the foundation of the world. If you were to just flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, we read Paul picking up on this theme where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has chosen us. Now, before you're like, Andrew, I don't think that's the context. I'll just give you a quick little peek at where we're going at the end. If you look down to to verse 9, You're going to see in verse 9 what uh, the psalmist talks about, how all the princes of the peoples, of the people of the God of Abraham. Ooh, we're starting to see God's just redemptive plan being interwoven into this psalm, and it's going to get really juicy. I'm really excited to get there when we get there. But as he is talking about this heritage of the people of God, Right? I know it says Jacob, which typically means Israel, but I want you to understand that God has even chosen those of us in Christ to become children of God, of being heirs of the promises of the people of Jacob, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I don't know, Andrew. It seems like you're going too far. Well, if you're still in Ephesians... Uh, you could go over to chapter 3 in verse 6 that actually talks about this where Paul is completing this beautiful tapestry of God's plan of choosing a people in the Old Testament and in the New being the same people. And this is what he says. He says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Friends, I, the promise is here in verse 4. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now, we are going to get to verse 5, but I want you to see how there is a selah in your Bible. Selah means to pause, to ponder, to meditate, to think about what we have just been talking about. And I think that's appropriate because verse 5... What we're getting into, which still falls under the category of what has God done in redemptive history, as we look at verse 5, this is kind of the linchpin. This is helping us understand the rest of this psalm, because when you look there, if you were to look at the psalm, which I hope you're doing in front of you, verses, uh, these these chunks, verses 1 through 4, and then 6 through 9, do the same thing. They're telling us to worship God, and then why we should worship God. 
And then they tell us, worship God, then why you should worship God. But then right in the middle, we just get this peculiar text. It doesn't really seem to fit with the other things. And this is what it says. It says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And so this is where, for much of church history, people get the idea of a liturgy, of a psalm of ascension, or even worshiping the day, or not the day, but uh, celebrating the ascension day, the day that Christ has gone up, the day that Christ ascended, 40 days after the resurrection. So this is what we are reading here. We're reading this idea about ascension, but it's in the Old Testament, right? God has gone up, Now, that is where we get this idea of ascension, God going up. Well, what is he ascending to? His throne, as we see at the end of the song. God is ascending to his throne. So, as we're looking at that, what does a king do when he sits on his throne? Well, he reigns, and his work is complete in the Old Testament when a king would sit down. When he would sit on his throne, it would be a sign of completion. So what I think what we're seeing here from this idea of ascension in verse 5, remember where we were in Psalm 46, this kind of climactic ending. So what we're seeing, or what I believe what we're seeing is going on, is that this going up of Yahweh is the triumph of Yahweh for his people. This is the triumph of God in the end, this going up. This showing the the people of God, yes, there is our God, and we triumph as he has completed his work. Now, I want to bring up two ideas or, or two references here in your Old Testament, or one in your Old Testament, one in the New Testament. So if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 15, this is that awesome, glorious entry of the ark coming back to Jerusalem. It's this crazy scene, trumpets blaring, people singing, and David is out of his mind, right? He's dancing before the people. He is just so excited. He is so excited. This is what verse 15 says. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, you can underline that if you want to. Maybe some of you are like, no, I do not do that in my Bible, Andrew. But you can underline that. And then you can jump back to Psalm 47 and you can underline in verse 5, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Because what's happening here in the Hebrew is this is an exact replica. The only place in the Hebrew that is word for word these two sentences. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew. Although it's translated in our Bibles with trumpet, or horn, or maybe the chauffeur, right? This idea of this big horn that's being blown and, 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 and making this beautiful noise. And so instead of people, like some commentators would say, oh, this is where that is then in Psalm 47. I don't think that's right. I think in our grouping of Psalm 45 through 48, that would be confusing. But I think what we see from that is what's happening The ark of the Lord, this this beautiful ornament thing that the people would put uh, in the temple. There was no temple yet, but there was a tabernacle. It's being brought back to the people of God. So the ark of God is, is being brought back to the people of God 
in the city of God, in the tabernacle of God. This is crazy. This is awesome. They are celebrating this because it's the triumph of their God coming back to their people. They are, they are so excited to celebrate this triumph. Okay, then you can go to Acts chapter 1. I know we've been excited to be digging through Acts, and, and we made it through in our adult Sunday school. So if you want more of this, you can go find all of our stuff online um, talking about the book of Acts. I would recommend you to go there. But we see the ascension here as well. We see the ascension in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9. We read, And when he had said these things, he being Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. He had gone up. He was ascended. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who, has, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. So this idea of being taken up, Christ had completed his work on the cross. It was his triumph as he went up to sit at the right hand of God as the nations had been made his footstool. This is the beauty of what has God done? God has ascended to his throne. This God who we worship, this covenantal, most high, kingly God, he has ascended to his throne. And that is where he is sitting even now. But that's not all. That's not all that Psalm 47 is telling us about our God and what he has done. The next thing we see, so we've seen mighty deeds in history, we've seen his ascension, and now we'll see his dominion. When you read in verses 8, God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne, and then jumping down to the end of verse 9, for the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. What are we seeing here? We're seeing God's dominion over all of everything. <laughs> Not just the nations, but everything. God reigns over the nations. I wonder how helpful that is for you today. To remember that as we look at the political craziness that is unfolding before us. Whether you immediately think of your head of indictments or you think of war or whatever you might be thinking of, there is a lot of turmoil that is going on. And if we're not careful, we can be like those people who get all worked up and it's all about this thing. And if this thing doesn't happen just the way it's supposed to, it's all going to crumble. But that's not what God says. God says that he is ruling and reigning now. This is his world. This is his plan. This is his will. Be still and know that he is God. That is what we need to be reminded of when we think of what God has done. He has dominion over all things, over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Remember Psalm 2 telling us how the nations rage? And what does God do or does? He laughs. He laughs like, oh, they think that they can figure this out, but I have it under control. We see that the psalmist is already pointing us to the end. 
Remember the destruction that will be happening, and this is what's coming on the heels of it. We see our covenantal most high king over all the earth is reigning high above any other power, and he has begotten his son, Christ, who has been given the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 110 helps us remember that Christ is enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God, and his enemies are to be made his footstool. Matthew 28, 18 actually talks about Christ's dominion. I'm making a bridge here. I'm making a bridge from this Old Testament to the New. Christ talks about, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To him. All authority has been given to Christ. Well, who has all authority? The king. The king has all authority. The king is over his kingdom. So we see that our God has dominion over all things. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough to make you stand up right now and hallelujah or amen, we have one more that should tug at all of our hearts. He fulfills his promises. A good king is a king that makes a promise and then completes it. Our earthly powers and rulers will see them make promises all the time and they never come true. But God makes his promises and he is always true to them. Go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. think I'm trying to be nice and give you time, but I just haven't gotten there yet. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, wait a minute. Our psalm talks about this very man, doesn't it? Our psalm in verse 9 says the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Let's go back to Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, who will be called Abraham soon enough. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Whoa. What we're seeing in Psalm 47 is the fulfillment of this promise where God made a promise all the way back in Genesis. And he'll, he'll actually, by farther steps, continue that promise until the completion, which we're all excited about to get to in the book of Hebrews when Pastor Joel gets us there and we can read about this king of ours who made that covenant by his own blood. But that's what this promise is in 47. This is the end. This is when all peoples, both Jew and Gentile, are coming together as one people of God. If you can't start to feel something inside of you about the joy, if you can't start thinking about praising God when you see the tapestry of his plan coming together, friends, I'm, I'm fearful for you. 
This should be raising in your heart a joy, a beauty, an excitement of your God. Whoa, his whole word is just all intricately related. It's all these cool little pieces that are being put together into this redemptive story that should blow your mind because God is always faithful to his promises. He is our good king who not only does these mighty deeds, who not only uh, ascends into the heavens, not only has dominion over all things, but he will always be faithful to his promises. So then we get to this question. How do, I, how do I respond to that? What do I do with all of this awesomeness that we just read about our God and about what he's done? What do I do with that? How do I respond to our God? Before you think we're getting to where we will get, the first thing you need to do is to be in fear. What are you talking about? You got us to this point and now fear? That's what you're talking about? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. Remember Psalm 46? Remember as we walk through it. I told you three things about God. I know you all have it. You all wrote it down. You have it memorized. But I'll just repeat them. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. And God will be exalted. Now, if you honestly think about those three things, a being who has no bounds to his existence, who is not chained to time like you and I are, a being who's completely outside of it, who is more powerful than we could ever imagine or even understand because he in his being is all power. And a God who will be exalted in the end, whether you or I bend the knee to worship him or not, he will be exalted. Friends, this should incite in you fear. You should be a little scared. Not a little. You should be terrified of this God. So then, do we respond with singing? Because that's, the only other thing that's talked about in this entire psalm, we haven't even got there yet. Do we respond in singing because we're, we're scared of this big, scary God? Do we, do we respond in singing to somehow appease an angry God with melodious tunes that he will not be angry with us anymore? Is this what we're doing? Of course not. Absolutely not. We sing because we are in awe of what this king invokes in us. Knowing that this God who should be feared and terrified has done wondrous works in our lives. He is our great king, the king over all the earth. No, friends, we worship him because he is our awe-inspiring king. We can be fearful, yes, when we think about his majesty. But when we know he has saved us, when we can look back in redemptive history and see all the things that he's done, that fear turns into an overflowing joy. A joy that cannot be contained. So yes, 
How do we respond to God? We respond in fear and in awe. But that's not all we do. No, this psalm begins right away with an emphatic imperative, with an imperative that is repeated to to make us really feel what's going on here. We respond in heartfelt, energetic, joyful song. That is our command. Our psalm with these two imperatives about clapping your hands, it's okay. You can clap your hands here. People, if they turn up your nose, you just point them to Psalm 47 and say, get over it, okay? You're allowed to clap. You heard it here. You're allowed to clap if you'd like to, okay? So we see this emphatic joyfulness of clapping and loud shouts. If you're one of those people, when you sing, you're singing like this. You really don't want other people to hear you because you don't want to hear my voice. If you hear me, you know I don't care what my voice sounds like because we're singing to God, right? We're also singing to encourage one another, and I'll get there in a second. But we have this overwhelming, heartfelt, energetic, joyful response to our God. This is based in our joy for our King and our Savior at the heels of all things coming to an end. So I think... By working through this, we've dispelled one of those uh, questions I proposed to you in the beginning. Is worship supposed to be dry and dusty? Absolutely not. The Word of God actually condemns that. It is supposed to be from your heart. There is joy. There are feelings. Those are okay. Not when they drive you and not when uh, they are the things that you're trying to worship. But when you're worshiping God and you have feelings, those are good. You can have those. So how can we not worship in joy when we think about the fact that God has chosen us and given us the inheritance of being children of God, of being heirs of the promises, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel? How can you not be joyful? In fact, friends, if you are not joyful about that, I am concerned about your salvation. We should have a joy no matter what. We should always have a joy. The next thing that I want to draw your attention to and how we respond, so we respond to God in fear and awe. We respond with heartfelt, energetic, joyful singing songs. Verses 6 and 7 bring up something really interesting. First of all, Verses 6 and 7 are crazy with commands. Every time you see an exclamation point in your Bible, that's a command. So we're reading, sing, sing praises, sing praises to your king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a song. Hmm, what's that about? Sing praises with a song. Is this um, something different than what we're already doing when we're singing praises with a psalm? Well, what's interesting about this word that's translated psalm, it comes from the Hebrew word maskil. And when, if you remember, there's been a lot of psalms that we've been working through that have a um, superscript or the thing that I read right before I read the rest of the psalm. Like to the choir master, right? A psalm of the sons of Korah, like I read this morning. There's also times where it'll say a maskil. What does this word mean? I think it would do us well to understand it. 
This word can mean contemplative poem or for something to inspire wisdom. Hmm. Something to inspire wisdom. James Hamilton, a commentator and a professor at Southern Seminary, says this about it. He says, therefore, everyone should psalm a maskil or sing a maskil. That is, sing songs that cause wisdom. The term maskil occurs in a number of psalm superscriptions, indicating that the psalmist wants everyone in the world to declare the truths about Yahweh and poetic song-like form along the lines of what is being done through the psalms. So, what we are seeing here is that we should not just sing songs loud and energetically and with clapping of hands and with joyful hearts, but we should be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that cause wisdom to those who hear it. We want to know God who is our God. We want to know what he has done and we want to praise him for it. Friends, remember that God has created the art of singing. This wasn't something that secular society made up and then we tagged into our worship services to be cool and bring more people in with nice tunes. No, this is something that God has done throughout all redemptive history. From the songs of Moses to the songs of David to the very songs of the sons of Korah, to Christ singing after taking the Lord's Supper, to Paul talking to the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Corinthians about singing. Singing was always a part of God's redemptive plan. In fact, this skillful, wisdom-causing psalms were something that Paul actually picks up when he starts talking in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he tells you how to do it. By teaching and admonishing one another, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yes, this was created by God, and it was done so, so that the word of God would dwell into your heart and would produce that wisdom of God and that energy and that excitement and that praise of God. This was created by God for God's glory. That we would sing. That we would have thankfulness in our hearts to God. So the word of Christ dwells in us richly when we sing. Oh, how powerful this truth is when you think of song in your life. I've set it up here before. You can listen to the radio. You can listen to your... I don't know, podcast or I, whatever, those things that where you listen to your music and in a moment, you're back to that place. And for the most part, a lot of that is done and maybe it, it brings up something beautiful or maybe it brings up something that you're ashamed of. Whether we think of music as secular or religious, it is all important because it all does something to us because that's the way that God created it to do. And so when we hear a psalm or a hymn or a spiritual song that we've been singing here, we don't just do that willy-nilly. We want you to sing these songs throughout the week. And when you're struggling and when you're thinking about something, we want that hymn to come back to your head and haunt you in a good way. We want that to be ringing in your ears. And we want you to do it out of the abundance of your heart. 
Friends, we're commanded to sing in this psalm. We sing out of the abundance of our heart, and we actually see this in heaven. So spanning the redemptive span of, of singing, if you are annoyed that we sing here, friend, if you're like, we sing too many songs, or I don't like singing, so I'm not going to sing, friends, I have some bad news for you. We are going to be doing it for eternity. Amen. That is what we do. That is a part of eternity. Just think about the beauty of Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, as we hear voices calling out from all over heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, that will be a choir that will not go away. So if you're annoyed about singing them now, I pray that you practice because it's a tool you'll need for eternity. God is king and we should sing. So as I come to a conclusion, why do we sing? Uh, T. David Gordon, in a, in a fun little book you might want to pick up called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, wrote this. Biblically then, neither music nor song is merely a matter of entertainment or amusement. Both are very serious business. Both culturally and religiously, song is divinely instituted, divinely commanded, and divinely regulated means of responding to God's great works of creation, preservation, and deliverance. We sing because God is our covenantal, most high king of all the earth. We sing because he is our sovereign God. We sing because God has done wondrous deeds in redemptive history and in our own lives. We sing to give him thanks for these beautiful realities. We sing because our sovereign king has commanded us to. And as his covenantal bride, we want to obey him. God is not silent on how he is to be worshipped. As David and Uzzah, he has told us in his word how he wants to be worshipped. We need to listen. Finally, out of the overflow of a forgiven, fearful, awful heart, we praise him when we sing loud shouts of joy. We clap our hands to say, all glory be to Christ. Friends, I told you to underline the trumpet. And that's because we're going to end here. Psalm 47 reminded us today of the trumpet or the chauffeur. It was blown as the ark came into Jerusalem to call all people to remember that their God sits on a throne. It is blown to signal to the people that their God is reigning over all things, like even the destruction of Psalm 46. And finally, friends, the trumpet will be blown again. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. All that, or at the sound of that trumpet, every eye will see and every knee will bow. The nations that are a part of the people of the God of Abraham will not be able to contain themselves with loud shouts for joy in psalms of praise, in psalms causing wisdom, and clapping of hands as the covenantal Most High King descends from his throne to judge the world. Friends, in that day, there will be songs of joy and there will be gasps of horror. There will be songs of praise and songs of lament. 
There will be heartfelt clapping and grinding of teeth. So tell me, what song will you be singing for eternity? Turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ, the sovereign who died for your sin, who accomplished his work on the cross and was given his inheritance. Give Christ the glory for your life and sing with us now as we will get back up and sing, all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you all the glory as you reign and rule on your throne. Father, as our lives can seem to fall apart, as we see the nation's rage before our very eyes, may we not be swept up in the fretting of the people, but may we have our strong anchor that is attached to the throne of heaven. By Christ our Savior, may he be the one that propels us forward, that keeps us that helps us in all our times of despair, of all our times of happiness, in all our times of praise and joy and heartfelt song. May we know our anchor. May we hold tightly to it. And may we praise you, God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.